I think it's interesting how the meaning of things changes over time. For example, there are a number of holidays that we observe. Um, and we might have had one reason to observe those holidays at a particular point in history and another point to observe them later. Uh, we have, for example, uh, something like Easter commemorates the death of Jesus. And that, perhaps in some respects, uh, parallels the Passover, which God had given to the Israelites to be the first and primary feast or observance of their calendar. We'll see that in more detail when we get to Leviticus chapter 23. But over time, their decision to take what God had said was supposed to be important to them and to replace it with things that they decided would be important to them instead led to the Jewish people following various superstitions and prioritizing what they wanted to do over what God had said was really important. Take something else, like when it comes to the subject of clothing, because that's going to get mentioned a fair number of times in this passage. We saw it at the end of what Paul just read for us. Uh, clothing for us today we think of as something to keep us warm in the wintertime when it's cold outside. We think of it as something to make ourselves look attractive or handsome to the people around us. We think of it for a variety of reasons. But God gave clothing originally to Adam and Eve as a covering for the shame connected with their sin and as a constant reminder of the fact that that sin brought the penalty of death. Why? Because he had to kill those animals to give them the animal skins to clothe them with. And so we have become far removed from things like what was the original meaning of clothing or what was the original significance of events on the calendar that God laid out for the Israelites. Just uh, by way of review from a few weeks ago, Leviticus 11 to 15 was focusing on the state of the person, that they were unclean, right? And there were several times, particularly in this passage that Paul read for us, that Moses mentions this issue of the impurities of the people being a reason for things needing to be cleansed. And so last week, or two weeks ago, when we talked about clean versus unclean, it was primarily focused on the state of the person, right? This is focusing more on when we're talking about actual sin, what was the process that God laid out for dealing with that actual sin, not just so the person could be clean instead of unclean, but so that the whole nation's sins could be dealt with in God's sight. Um, that process is described a number of times in this passage as to make atonement. But it's interesting that that word to make atonement is sometimes in the Old Testament translated to cover. For example, Noah covered the ark with pitch, right? Uh, so that it would be waterproof. And so in some places it's emphasizing more the idea of covering of objects. But here it has the idea of the covering of sin. That day of atonement on the Jewish calendar is described by the phrase Yom Kippur, the day of covering, right? And in modern day times, this is celebrated right after Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, which occurs around September or October, uh, according to our calendars. And so while the temple stood, and when the people were not in exile, they regularly celebrated this Yom Kippur, this Day of Atonement that God required of them. But then the temple fell, 
So what happened? Superstition and focus on self-righteousness became the replacement for the picture that God had given them of the coming work of Jesus. Without a temple, you couldn't make a sacrifice. So the rabbis said, instead, we can't do what God said, so here is what we've come up with. Be repentant and do good things to other people. So, essentially, they take this beautiful picture of God's salvation and they replace it with a light version of Ramadan or Lent. Now, I can't say that every Jewish person thinks this way. There are differences in observance between more devout Jews and secular Jews and all of those. I'm just saying the general attitude that the rabbis promoted was, let's take this thing that God has said, and since we can't do it the way that God said, and since they would admit they didn't need to because Jesus had already come, let's replace it with something else. So, for example, it was not, I turn from my sin to God, but I turn back to my own inherent goodness as a person. I just got done teaching through Romans 3 in my 8th grade Bible class. If anything, that passage emphasizes we do not have inherent goodness as a person. We are sinners. We reject God. We speak lies. We wish evil on those around us. We have turned aside from God. We go our own way. We need someone to bring us to repentance, this is not something we can muster up by our own efforts. For those who observe these things today, they say, well, I'd, it's not that I fellowship with God, but that I attach myself to God by following these rituals that I've come up with. Does that sound like anything we might do? It is entirely possible for us to substitute the rituals of reading our Bible and prayer and yet have no connection with God as a person because we're just doing things to do things. And then finally, it is not I find God's justice and God's charity toward me sufficient for dealing with my sin through the sacrifice that God appointed, but that has been replaced with, well, I'm going to do acts of charity to people around me, and God will say, hey, that's great, that's good enough. And so from being a unique picture of God and who He is, and what he requires in dealing with sin and the cost of it and anticipating the coming of Christ, it's been replaced with a generic set of rituals that sounds like every other pagan attempt to come before God, which is, do your best, you'll probably be fine. But what does the passage actually talk about? Before we get there, it would be important to note that there is a prayer that has come to be associated with the Jewish New Year leading up to the Day of Atonement. And the prayer goes something like this. May your name be inscribed in the book of life. Well, how did this book of life idea get attached to the Day of Atonement? It's hard to say precisely when it came from. Is this a biblical concept? Yes. Moses mentions it in Exodus 32, right after the Israelites sin with the golden calf. He says, if you will not forgive them, may you blot out my name from your book. In Psalm 69, David mentions this, saying, God, will you blot out the names of my wicked oppressors from your book? Jesus, in Luke 10, 20, tells his disciples, don't rejoice that you have the power to cast out demons and to heal the sick, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Revelation 3, 5, 20, 12, and 21, some verses there, we see people judge for their works according to God's book of life. 
But it's interesting that even though it was a biblical idea, it was not originally attached to the Day of Atonement, and it has become turned into a superstition, something along these lines. If you're really devout for the three days or so around the Jewish New Year, then God's going to put a check mark by your name in the Book of Life, and you're good for another year. If you're really bad, God's going to put an X, and you're, not, you're going to die, and you're going to be punished for your sins. And if you're in the middle like most of us, you got a little bit of wiggle room, and maybe the Day of Atonement will help make up for it for you. Now, I'm not trying to unfairly characterize this, but this is, as best I can tell, how Jewish rabbis have spoken of this Jewish New Year and the Day of Atonement, and they have trivialized it, and they have made it a mockery of the thing that God wanted it to be, and it is entirely possible for us to do the same thing by substituting our own rituals for what God has laid out for us. What about for us? There is no temple today. We cannot sacrifice animals to deal with our sin, and in fact, we don't need to because Jesus has come, and that is how our sin is atoned for. How then are we to understand Leviticus 16? Come humbly before God to receive atonement. You must come humbly before God to his holy place. Why? Because coming before a holy God in pride brings death. Think back to Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons died when they came before God in a way that he had not prescribed in their own imaginations. They were struck dead. And what is this passage? Why do I bring that up? Because the beginning of this passage says, The Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron when they had approached the presence of the Lord and died. Verse 2, Tell your brother Aaron he shall not enter at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat which is on the ark, or he will die. He could not come flippantly into God's presence. One time a year, the high priest was allowed to go into this holiest of places in the tabernacle, and otherwise he was not permitted to go in, or he would die. He could not come before God in pride, in carelessness, and lack of attention to the things that God had said. We see this as well in verse 13. Specifically, when he went into the tabernacle, he was supposed to take the incense, mixed according to the proportions that God had laid out. We saw that earlier in Leviticus. Take the incense, put it on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense would cover the mercy seat, or he would die. Similarly, I think we see that we need Jesus to go between us and God. Sometimes we think, well, eh, we can just sort of wander into God's presence. If Jesus were not present to open the way between us and God, to serve as our mediator, we would have no access to God's presence. And so, given the sober nature of what we see here in Leviticus 16, we would do well to consider how it is that we come before God. We should come freely before God. As we sang in one of our songs a few moments ago, we can come boldly before the throne of grace. That's what the book of Hebrews says. But we cannot come flippantly because the same God who struck people dead for not following his rules in the Old Testament is the same God that we serve today. Come humbly before God to his holy place. Coming humbly before a holy God demands humble recognition of my sinfulness. There was the offerings that God required. There are a number of offerings that are described in chapter 16. I'll just summarize it for you briefly. Basically, Aaron was supposed to, and priest after him, 
we're supposed to bring a, a bull for a uh, sin offering, verse 3, and a ram for a burnt offering. That was on his own behalf and on behalf of his family. Then he was supposed to bring, furthermore, two male goats for a sin offering and a ram for a burnt offering, verse 5, on behalf of the people. So these were the offerings that were to be brought. Aaron was to deal with his own sin first and then with the sin of the people. What did this look like? We'll talk about that in just a moment. But they were also supposed to, in, in terms of this humble recognition of sinfulness, bringing the exact offering that God required because sin demands a sacrifice. They were supposed to wear these garments that symbolized holiness. Verse 4, the linen tunic, the linen undergarments, the linen sash. These were white. These were a picture of purity. They were a covering, like I said at the very beginning. Nakedness is not automatically sinful, but the shame associated with sin required a covering, and that's why God gave people clothing. And so when they came into God's presence, they wore clothing that symbolized purity, that served as a physical reminder of their separation in their sinful state from God in His holiness. We see this furthermore, for example, in verse 23. There were certain things that were supposed to follow. He should come into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments and leave them there and then put on his other clothes after he's been in God's presence. Because it wasn't that you went into God wearing this particular robe and then you just wandered around camp wearing the same robe. There was a separation, a reminder, a, a distinction that was made there. There were washings to symbolize cleanness. It was, he shall bathe his body in water and put them on. He shall bathe his body in water and take them off. Even the person who takes the goat out to the wilderness has to bathe his body before he can come back in to the camp, perhaps as a picture of his association with the uncleanness of the sins that have been associated now with that goat that's being sent away from the people. And so this was, this was not take a bath so that you smell nice. This was not take a bath so you don't get sick. This was take a bath to symbolize washing and purification from sin. I think even today, we have a requirement to prepare our hearts to come before God. What was the offering God demanded of the people in the Old Testament? A number of different things in this passage, bulls and goats and sheep. What is the offering that God requires of us? Ourselves, praise, the honor due His name. We see that both in the Psalms and echoed in the New Testament. So we prepare to bring God the offering that He requires. We prepare not so much our bodies by outward rituals, but our souls through the cleansing of conscience that comes through what God has accomplished. We've talked about this a number of times in previous weeks, so I won't belabor the point here. But we must prepare our hearts to come before God. We come before God not in pride, but in humility. And humility means we recognize our sinfulness. And by God's grace, we are constantly confessing that sin, laying it aside, and able to come in cleanness into his presence. We'll talk more about that in connection with the Lord's table later this morning. So not only must you come humbly before God to his holy place, but you must come humbly before God in order to receive atonement by means of a sacrifice. There was atonement for the priest himself. As I mentioned before, Aaron was to sacrifice the bull. Verse 6, he shall offer the bull for the sin offering for himself, to, and here's our phrase, make atonement for himself and his household. Verse 11, he shall offer the bull of the sin offering for himself and make atonement for himself and his household and slaughter the bull of the sin offering which is for himself 
then he is also to make atonement for the holy place. We saw this in verse 16, for the tent of meeting, for the altar, verses 18 and 19, before the mercy seat, verses 14 and 15. And we might have this question, why do things need to be cleansed that are already, in a sense, holy? I think the key is in verse 16, because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and their transgressions, and the tent of meeting abides in the midst of their impurities. So there is a sense in which this thing that was declared by God to be holy, the place where he would meet with his people, had to be periodically and ritually cleansed because God's people among whom he dwelled were sinful and full of uncleanness. So there was purification for the priest and his family, purification for the tent of meeting and all the objects of worship, and then there was purification for the people. What did this look like? They were to draw lots for the two animals. Verse 8, cast lots for the two goats, one for the Lord and one for the scapegoat. The one on whom the lot for the Lord fell, Aaron shall offer the goat and make it a sin offering. But the lot goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it, to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. So there was a sense in which not only was there an animal that was sacrificed and things were done with the blood and the fat was burned as an offering to God, but there was an animal over which there was this ritual where the priest would confess the sins of the people and then send the animal away in the wilderness as a picture of God sending their sin away from them by means of this annual observance. What does that have to do with us today? Like I said, there's no temple there's no sacrifices that we make. We don't follow this ritual. But what was the point of it? The point of it was Jesus is the true and final and atoning sacrifice. Romans chapter 3 says that we are justified by the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice that Jesus has made. We saw not too long ago, although... Uh, it has been a little while, from Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17, where it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation, to do an atoning sacrifice for the sins of the people. We see this further, for example, in 1 John chapter 2. And in 1 John chapter 2, it says this in the first few verses, I am writing these things so that you may not sin. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Now, people will argue about whether the atonement of Christ was intended to save only the people that God would call to salvation, or whether the atoning sacrifice of Christ was on behalf of those who would not turn to and trust Christ. Regardless of which perspective you take on it, the effect is the same, which is this. Jesus' sacrifice did no good for those people in the nation. I should say the sacrifice of the scapegoat, sending the sins away, did no good for those in the tribe of Israel, tribes of Israel who rejected God and who were secretly sinners within themselves. And in the same way, whether you have a narrow or a broad view of Jesus' atoning sacrifice in 1 John chapter 2, the point is this, 
you will not benefit from that sacrifice if you reject the provision that God has made. So there are people who say, well, Jesus died for the sins of the whole world. Everybody's going to heaven. That is absolutely false according to the scriptures. And for people who then say, well, you know, we, uh, the point is this. You will not benefit from Jesus' sacrifice if you reject him. Jesus is the only way of salvation. I think that's the main point that John is making here. 1 John 4 and verse 10 similarly says, And this is love, not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Jesus' death actually and truly deals with sin in a way that we could never do. And the only way that we can come before God is through Jesus. And so if someone says in their arrogance, like some of the Israelites back in the day of Aaron, Aaron's sons, in fact, I'm going to come before God in this other way, not according to the things that he's laid out. The penalty was death. What does John say in John 3? We fixate on verse 16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. You know what it says at the end of chapter 3? It says the one who has rejected the Son of God is condemned already because he has rejected the one that God has sent. He is in his condemnation. He has no hope. He faces God's wrath. And so if we're going to say John 3.16, let's say the end of John chapter 3. If we're going to say 1 John 2 and say, well, well God, Jesus has died and offers, offers salvation to the whole world, which is true, we also must remind people that that sacrifice does not take away God's wrath if you reject it. Jesus is the true and final atoning sacrifice. Like both the goat that is offered, chosen by Lot, belonging to God, and the one that bears our sins away. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Jesus also in this acts as the priest. And so this is where it differs from the picture of the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, there were two animals and there was a priest. So there were three living creatures involved in this ritual. But in the person of Jesus Christ, there's only one. He is the goat that is sacrificed. He is the goat that is sent in the wilderness. And he is the priest performing the ritual. What do I mean by that? Jesus sprinkles his own blood. Again, going back to Hebrews some of the passages that we read not long ago. Hebrews 7.27 It is fitting for us to have such a high priest who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. Do you know which of these steps in Leviticus 16 Jesus didn't have to do? The one that Aaron did. He didn't have to make atonement for himself because he was already perfect. But what he did do was make atonement once for the sins of the people. We continue Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Just before that, Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. The author of Hebrews is drawing a direct line back to Leviticus 16. 
Hebrews 10, verse 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the body, the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God a little bit later. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. So Jesus has dealt with our sin in a way that the priests of the Old Testament could never do. Year after year, day after day, offering sacrifices over and over and over again that had to be offered again the next year or the next day. Jesus does it once and is done. But Jesus also bears our sins away. 1 Peter 2, verse 24 says, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. This was the stumbling block for the Jews because they looked at this and they said, how could someone die in a way that appeared to be the wrath of God on him? And the answer is because Jesus, like the scapegoat of Leviticus 16, bore our sins to the cross away from us and dealt with them and God accepted what he had done. And so the thing that was a mystery to them, a stumbling block for them, is in fact God's perfect plan for salvation. You and I cannot take our sins away from ourselves. Why? Because they keep coming back. You ever had mold in your shower? You ever seen rot in a piece of wood? What happens? You scrub the mold and it keeps coming back. You deal with the little piece of wood. You think you've gotten all the rot and it, it, sometimes it's spread far beyond what you can see, and the whole thing has to be replaced. In the same way, our efforts to deal with our sin apart from what Jesus has done is basically like us taking more caulking and putting it over the mold in the shower and taking more paint and putting it over the wood that's rotting. We're trying to cover up something that is empty and broken and incapable of being fixed in our own efforts. But what Jesus does is He takes our sin, He bears them to the cross, and He takes them away. As it says in Isaiah 53, verse 6, All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. Verse 12, He Himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So what do we do with this? It would be helpful for us to understand what Leviticus 16 says. Here's the sacrifices that were made, and here's what they were supposed to do, and the fact that there's the contrast at the beginning of the chapter, Aaron's sons disobeyed God, and at the end of the chapter, Moses and Aaron obeyed God. Those are important things to note. But when we look at this passage, along with what we know of the New Testament, and consider what it means for us today, here's what I think we should walk away with it from. You and I are to come humbly before God. There's a song that says, Nothing in my hand I bring, but simply to thy cross I cling. We don't come before God saying, Here's all the amazing things about myself as a person, and this is why. That's a resume. That's not what God wants. God doesn't want a resume. He wants repentance. God says, come before me humbly. 
I have nothing to offer you. Even in the offerings of the Old Testament, they had nothing in themselves to offer, which is why they had to take the animal and bring it before God, because they couldn't just come themselves empty-handed before God. Nothing I bring before God. Humbly I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. This is the sticking point for so many people. They don't want to say, I do wrong. They want to say, I made a mistake, or everybody does it, or it's no big deal. And Jesus says, if you want to come before me, you don't bring me any of your wasted effort at pleasing me, and you don't come before me thinking that your sin is no big deal. Why is it not no big deal? Because thousands upon thousands of animals died in the sacrifices of the Old Testament, and far more importantly than that, the precious blood of the Son of God was shed to deal with our sin. So why is sin a big deal? Because we see the cost of it. I come before God with nothing in my hands. I come before God humbly acknowledging I am a sinner. No excuses. And I say, Jesus, on the basis of your sacrifice, Jesus, by your power to actually deal with my sins, will you forgive me? I turn from them and I turn to you. But what do we do instead? We redefine the things that God has said and make what was supposed to be important an afterthought. Or we change the picture and make it a generic opportunity for expressing our own self-righteousness. What is the most important holiday for Christians? It's not Christmas. And it's not Easter in any sort of a secular sense. It's the reminder every week that Jesus has been raised from the dead and is our Savior. It's the, in our case of our church, a monthly reminder of the sacrifice of Jesus as we observe the Lord's table. All the other holidays on the calendar are not really all that important. And if we become fixated on them, like, oh, we should have the manger instead of Santa Claus, just like the Israelites who have said, well, you know, we're going to celebrate the Jewish New Year instead of the Day of Atonement, or we're going to redefine it, we need to follow what God has said in His Word and remember the things that God has said to remember and come before Him in the way that He has said and not make it our own thing because we think our way is easier or better or what we should do instead. And so many times, that's what we do. And so the question for you and I is this. Have you come before Jesus and said, I humbly receive your sacrifice in my place? And if you have done that, do you continue to follow after God on the basis of Jesus and what he has done? Or do we keep going back to our own efforts and our own works and think that we're going to be pleasing to God because we are saved by Jesus' work and we are sanctified by Jesus' work and we will be glorified by Jesus' work and so we don't get to take credit of the process anywhere along the way. We have to keep obeying the things that God has said for us to do. I'm not saying we just sort of sit back and wait for things to happen, but we acknowledge at every step along the way, Jesus, not me. Jesus, not me. Jesus, 
not me. Humility, God's atonement, is essential to the salvation that God offers. Don't replace it with made-up rituals or redefining God's amazing pictures of truth into generic attempts for you to try to work your way to God. It won't work. It angers God. And God has given us something so much better in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God requires humility to receive His atonement. Have you received that today? If you have, do you continue to live in light of it? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank You for the reminders that You give us of Jesus and His sacrifice the picture that you gave to the Israelites, which has since become obscured in their spiritual blindness. Lord, the picture that we might not see clearly because sometimes we've skipped over parts of your word because we think they don't have a whole lot to do with us or because all of our attention and effort has been devoted to pursuing other things instead. Lord, help us everything that we do to be sourced and rooted in your word, what you have said is important, the pictures that you have given us, the truths that you want us to know and believe and share with others, and not to make these empty and broken substitutes that we so often do. Lord, we need a covering for our sin, and that covering is found only in Jesus and what he has done for us. May we be all here this morning washed in the blood of the Lamb, covered by the purity of His sacrifice, not coming with in our hands the filthy rags and empty promises of our own efforts. Because if we do, we stand condemned. If we do, we do not know You, no matter how many things we may do otherwise. In Your name, in connection with your church, in the good opinions of other people. We don't know you if we come to you in any way other than through Jesus. May he be the one that we are coming to you through today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.